Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. On today's show, the Olympics this year are not just about sports, but politics. Just how close together will the games bring South and North Korea? How did we get here? And where will it lead? Then a strange crisis that is only getting worse. Saudi Arabia versus Qatar. What's going on? And why did Donald Trump get involved? The nation of Qatar, unfortunately, has historically been a funder of terrorism. I talked to the nation's foreign minister about whether there is a danger of another Middle Eastern war. Also, the former TV star who may be Vladimir Putin's toughest competition. 36-year-old Zenia Sobchak is running against the former KGB agent in next month's presidential elections. Does she really think she has a chance? I will ask her. Then a massive outbreak of violence in Afghanistan. The experts agree it's because of something that happened in Washington. Trump's Pakistan gambit and where it will end. But first, here's my take. I would like to briefly turn your attention away from Donald Trump, briefly, and toward that other thing happening in the world, you know, the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang. It's worth focusing not just on the sports happening there, but on this year's host country, South Korea. It is in some senses the most successful nation in the world, and its success provides some crucial lessons. First, the economics. South Korea is in a league of its own. In his 2012 book, Breakout Nations, Ruchir Sharma observed that only two economies had grown at an average annual rate of more than 5% for five decades in a row, South Korea and Taiwan. Sharma noted that South Korea's trajectory is perhaps even more impressive because unlike Taiwan, which is still rooted in low-cost manufacturing and assembly, South Korea has been able to move into the post-industrial economy with ease, entering industries like consumer electronics, biotech, and robotics. The achievement is all the more impressive when you consider where it started. Half a century ago, South Korea was one of the poorest countries on the planet, and nobody would have predicted that it would conjure up an economic miracle. In 1960, its per capita GDP was $158, slightly less than Ghana's. Today, it is over 27,000, almost 20 times that of Ghana's. But poverty only begins to describe the woes of South Korea as it emerged from the Korean War. The country had no natural resources, no geographic advantages, a largely illiterate population, and a physical infrastructure that had been battered during the war. And it faced the menace of North Korea. In addition to its economic boom, however, South Korea has also undergone a political transformation. It spent its first decades under a series of repressive dictatorships, but by the 1980s, that system began to crack as the Korean people demanded change. 
The transition to liberal democracy was rocky, as it is everywhere, but South Korea pulled it off. Moreover, in recent years, it has held accountable both its elected president and the owners of its largest company. Impressive actions, even when compared to more established democracies in the West. People might be inclined to conclude from all this that Koreans are simply innately talented. In fact, the case of the Korean Peninsula disproves this notion. Just across the 38th parallel live millions of North Koreans, ethnically indistinguishable from their neighbors to the south. Yet North Korea is a disaster, one of the world's least successful economies and most repressive political systems. South Korea's success is about having the right kinds of policies. I would add one other major factor to explain South Korea's success. America. The United States shielded and supported South Korea from its infancy when it was a basket case economy and a fragile country threatened by its neighbors. Americans went to war to defend this small nation halfway across the world and has maintained its defense commitment and troop presence there for six decades. Washington lavished financial resources on it as well. According to a South Korean think tank, the U.S. poured $60 billion in aid and loans into South Korea from 1946 to 78, close to the amount it spent on the entire continent of Africa during the same period. We're in times when Americans on both sides of the aisle are weary of engaging with the world, dubious about maintaining troops in foreign countries, and convinced that foreign aid is a waste of money. Over the next few weeks, as they watch the glittering games in Pyeongchang, they might want to think about how far South Korea has come and take some small pride in having helped it get there. For more, go to cnn.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Few could have predicted the current state of affairs between the Koreas even just a few weeks ago. To understand the import of it all, it helps to understand the history. We'll get that from my terrific guest. Sumi Terry is a senior fellow for Korea at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She was a senior analyst on Korean issues at the CIA last decade. And Gordon Chang is the author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Uh, Sumi Terry, let me start by asking, where we are now seems where South Korea wanted to be. Uh, the South Korean President Moon came in, made a series of overtures, worked with the International Olympic Committee, kept trying to get the North Koreans to agree to do this. The, the Trump administration was not cooperative, did not seem to want this. And here we are. You have this extraordinarily high-level delegation. You have the, the Koreas marching together. He must be pleased, President Moon. Yes, I'm sure President Moon is very pleased. As you know, since he came into office, he and his uh, advisors really wanted to engage with North Korea, and they haven't really talked to each other for two years. Um, so President Moon made multiple overtures, and now he must be very happy, not only that North Koreans are participating in the Olympics, but they are now talking to each other. And I think President Moon is very eager to turn this thaw in inter-Korea relations into a greater engagement between Washington and Pyongyang to make progress on the nuclear front. Does this mean that, that war is off the table? I mean, it's tough with the South Koreans being so chummy uh, or the two Koreas seem to be together. Does the Trump administration become the odd man out? 
Well, it is the odd man out now, and war is off the table, at least through the end of the Olympics or the Paralympics. The issue, though, is that South Korea has had a playbook, um, and that is, of course, as, as mm-hmm. Sumiteri has talked about, is to try to get the North Koreans in. But the North Koreans also have a playbook, and that is, first of all, you ignore South Korea. Then you make this bold overture, which is what Kim Jong-un did in his New Year's address. Then you demand concessions, which is where we are right now. And if you don't get what you want, you then throw tantrums. And the problem is after the end of the Olympics, Moon Jae-in is not going to be able to give Kim Jong-un what he wants because of U.N. sanctions, U.S. pressure. That's when things really get nasty. We all missed, uh, it seems to me, the overture. I I noticed in the region it was taken much more seriously. Uh, This is the North Korean overture, uh, uh, Kim Jong-un's overture. Does this suggest to you that, you know, the North Koreans are a lot more rational than we think? They, they, make an, they make threats, then they make offers. If you take them up on their offer, they do deliver. I mean, it seems much less crazy than people think. Well, I, I don't think any Korea watcher actually thinks Kim Jong-un is crazy. Uh, he is very rational. He's very calculating. I think North Koreans are very shrewd. And they are playing uh, this tactics. Uh, tactically, they're playing a beautiful game right now. It's a win-win for North Koreans, too. They have, get to have an image makeover by sending this delegation. I mean, there are 22 athletes and 230 hand-picked vetted cheerleaders. Uh, so, um, you, so they get to have an image makeover. They get to sort of put a wedge between Seoul and Washington in terms of alliance. And they get to probably use this as an insurance for future provocation and how U.S. is going to respond to North Korea's future provocations. Do you agree about, with, with, uh, on Kim Jong-un in that respect? Because it does seem to me, to add to what Sumi Terry says, and with this handful of athletes, They've totally dominated the media landscape and coverage. I mean, Donald Trump must be must be at some level envious of their ability to dominate the the media. Well, they certainly have. And people call it the Pyongyang Olympics. Um, So clearly it it is the North Korea has gotten the advantage for now. The problem, though, is the South Korean electorate is not buying it because, first of all, you have the conservatives who would never buy this. But you also have a big uh, constituent element of of Moon Jae-in, the South Korean president. His constituency is a little bit divided on this, especially with younger people who believe they're South Korean nationalists. They see their society separate and apart from North Korea, whereas Moon, from a very different generation, he's 65, sort of sees himself as a Korean nationalist of one Korean state. And so a lot of young South Koreans are upset right now, and we've seen this in Moon's approval ratings drop 10% within the space of a week. That's not good for the South Korean president. A lot of Koreans look at the two careers and they think to themselves, my God, if we were to unify, the cost for South Korea would be astronomic. There is a 40 to 1 difference in the per capita GDP of South versus North Korea. Let me ask you about the American strategy, Sumitari. Watching all this, we talked about the South Korean president getting what he wanted, the North Koreans being very rational, achieving what they want. I can't figure out what the Trump administration's strategy on Korea is. Can you? Well, I think for right now, it's just to continue with this maximum pressure policy. So you saw President Trump give the State of the Union address where he spent most of that time talking about focusing on the depravity of the Kim Jong-un regime, on the human rights issues, invited Otto Warmbier's family and the defector. And then he held an over office meeting with eight defectors. And then Vice President Pence invited as his special guest Otto Warmbier's father. And then they talked about continuing with sanctions. I think the strategy right now is continue to squeeze the Kim Jong-un regime financially, diplomatically, and all options are on the table. Trump has not decided on the use of military strike, but I think that's also on the table too. Do you think that the Trump administration uh, is, is 
waiting for the right moment to negotiate? Or do you think Donald Trump fundamentally hasn't decided whether he wants to negotiate? I think he has not decided, but I think it's really hard to get back to negotiation right now. Sanctions take time. I mean, in Iran's case, it took about three years of harsh sanctions. So sanctions need to take time, and it's just biting. So I think premature negotiation is not what the Trump administration is looking for right now. Thank you both. Fascinating. Uh, we will, of course, be following this issue. Next up, the woman who wants to take Vladimir Putin's job. Ksenia Sobchak is running against Putin for the presidency of Russia in next month's election. Does she have a chance to win? I'll ask her. But for a four-year respite as prime minister, Vladimir Putin has been president of Russia since May 7th of 2000, almost 18 years ago. His approval rating, measured by an independent Russian polling company, today hovers around 80%. Next month, Putin is up for re-election, but he does not run unopposed. Perhaps his toughest would-be competitor for the presidency, anti-corruption activist Alexei Navalny, has been banned from running. But there are seven names other than Putin on the approved list of candidates. That list was finalized on Thursday. My next guest is the only woman in the group. Ksenia Sobchak is just 36 years old. As such, she barely squeaks by the minimum age requirement. As a former reality TV star and a magazine editor, she does not have a traditional political resume by any means, but her father, ironically, was once Vladimir Putin's mentor. The candidate of Russia's Civil Initiative Party, Sobchak was on a U.S. tour this week, including a trip to Washington, where she was invited to Trump's prayer breakfast. Zenia, pleasure to have you on. Thank you for inviting me. So, you know, the big question people have is, um, can you conceivably win? Is, the, is this a real election that is going to take place? No, in Russia, unfortunately, we have a joke that you cannot choose your parents, you cannot choose your gender, and you cannot choose your president. <laughs> so on the elections where Putin takes part, Putin always wins, like in a casino, you know, it's always the win is always on the house. But it doesn't mean we stay at home and do nothing. Even though Alexei Navalny, as you said, was not led to those elections, which I think is totally unfair, Still, like in football, if, you know, someone from a football team, even the best player, goes off the match, the next one uh, has to come into the play. So, and that's me. And I hope that around me I can uh, unite protestants and people with opposition views to show some result and to show that we're against Putin and Russia is not Putin. There are many people who disagree with him. So what do you disagree with Putin on? Politically, in policy terms, where are, what are your differences? Well, first of all, I think that Russia has to have free democratic elections. That means that everyone who wants to take part in it should be admitted. Next, there should be full media coverage of the campaign on the same uh, level for all the candidates, which is not now the case. And thirdly, debates with the candidates should be there. Can you imagine that Putin just denies debates? He, uh, he says he won't take part in the debates of the candidates. So you do your job, guys, and I will stay still in Kremlin. Let me ask you, you're also in favor of gay rights in a way that Putin is not. Um, uh, uh, does Putin take these positions, the social conservatism, this kind of nationalism regarding Ukraine uh, and the Crimea, 
does he take these positions because he knows they appeal to the kind of heartland of Russia and he can paint your positions as being kind of Western, cosmopolitan and liberal? Is that his strategy? Well, like in Orwell books, whom I cherish very much as an author, in classical totalitarian regimes, you always have uh, to make people hate someone. And this hatred is all around uh, the Russian politics. What they do, they make uh, one people hate another. Doesn't matter. Minorities, people from Ukraine, Americans... It's just, you know, the epidemic of hatred which they pour on people from federal TVs. I'm against it. You know, there are theories. Russia is full of theories. One That's of them true. is that Putin has chosen you as the approved opposition candidate because you're a reality TV star. Obviously, you're going to be very liberal. And he's going to say to the Russian people... Look, that's the, the glittering, superficial, cosmopolitan, urban world that hates me uh, and, you know, benefit in a way from the anti-elitism, from the, the class warfare. Uh, you know, in, 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 yeah, yeah. in many ways, it's a little bit like Trump uh, reminding people of the, the urban elites who hate him, of the media that hates him, of political correctness. Are, are you falling into that trap? My burden is my past as a TV star. But, you know, past cannot be your life sentence. I made my lessons and I'm a different person. I'm a political journalist for more than 10 years in Russia. But, of course, in totalitarian regime, only one person, a brave person, can try to break the system with a little tools or with some burdens. It's unfortunately the realistic picture of what we have. And I realize that, but still I want to use it to the end. And being underestimated is something a good thing in totalitarian regime. Many of Vladimir Putin's opponents politically are now dead. Um, do you worry about your safety? Yes, but not now. Uh, after 18th of March, when I will not be in the spotlight and I will not be an official candidate, I think there are a lot of problems to face. But what I'm doing now is worth it because I think it's very important and I want to really prolong the story of my father and the things that he found important. So for me, it's a thing of a lifetime I do. Ksenia Sobchak, pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Next on GPS, what in the world is going on in stock markets in America and around the globe? My next guest will tell you the volatility is perfectly normal. In fact, he predicted it on the show just a few weeks ago. Back in a moment. Markets around the world swung wildly this week. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was driven to its largest single-day point drop in history on Monday, sending global markets spinning. That day, the market ended down more than 1,000 points, and it wasn't the only 1,000-point drop of the week. For many, these developments seem to have come as a complete surprise. The global economy for some time has been a reliable good news story. Growth everywhere, markets up, consumer confidence surging. And it would have been hard to miss Donald Trump crowing about his policy's supposed effects on the economy and the stock market last month. The stock market has smashed one record after another, gaining $8 trillion and more in value in just this short period of time. So why are the markets now swinging and so down? 
what's going to happen over the coming year, and what does it mean for the broader economy. Here to explain all this is Ruchir Sharma, the head of emerging markets and chief global strategist at Morgan Stanley, who warned about a bubble right here on GPS in December. So, Ruchir, your basic thesis has been, and you, you put this terrific presentation together in January called Peak Everything. And the first point you make is that we should have expected this volatility because we had gone through a period of what you call peak calm. What does that mean? Right. That's the nature of markets. And like, this is a very moody beast. And yet it was behaving in this amazing zen-like character for the last couple of years, which is that the American stock market, uh, for example, every year, going back decades, typically has a 10% correction. Last year, the maximum correction was barely 3%. And this is very unprecedented. But this is not just the U.S. Across the world, the volatility that we saw in stock markets over the last 12 months, before this outbreak over the last few days, was the lowest in recorded history. So this is like an unusual period of calm that the markets went through. And as always, people begin to feel that this time is different and this can run on uh, for a while longer. You also talk about peak growth. Um, What do you mean by that? You you say that there's, there's a sense in which we have reached the maximum growth potential, in a way, of the, of the particularly the developed world. Right. Global unemployment rates today are at a 40-year low. That just tells you that the number of new people we can find to get to work is a lot lower than imagined. This is very counter to the conventional wisdom about robots coming and stealing your jobs and automation and stuff like that. But I think that the importance of demographics has still not been internalized by people. The global economy grew at a pace of nearly 4% between 1950 and 2008. And most people use that as a sort of reference number. That's the sort of anchoring bias, that that's what the global economy should be growing at. The U.S. economy should be growing at 3 to 4%. What they forget is that that was the only time in history that the global economy grew at such a robust pace. And the single most important reason for that was we had a massive surge in population across the world like never before. So there are two drivers of economic growth. One is the increase in productivity, and two is the increase in the world's labor force. The increase in the world's labor force between 1950 and 2005 was exceptional, and that has come to an end. So that big demographic surge has come to an end, and yet we want to keep harking back to the sort of growth um, rates that we had in that golden era, not realizing that the world's working-age population today, including the U.S., is growing at half the pace as um, what it was in that golden era for economic growth. One other thing you point out, which is very interesting, is uh, just to show how out of whack things are right now, is we're also at peak tech. Right. That the valuations of tech companies are just staggering. You point out that Apple's valuation, market capitalization, is larger than the entire country of Italy. Right. There are lots of such anomalies going on out there. The market cap of Mexico is, small, uh, is now smaller than the market cap of, let's say, Uh, Google, uh, or even some of the other companies like Amazon. So I think what that is telling you is this, that the valuation of these tech companies has really become um, like out of whack. And the valuations of these companies are very stretched. And a lot of the other uh, countries in the world, especially like in Europe and Asia, have really been neglected. So that's where the opportunity could lie over the next few years. So if you look at the, the, the circumstances, the, eco- the economic structural realities you point out, lowest unemployment rate in a long time across the world, lowest unemployment rate in the United States for a long time, economy in its ninth year of expansion, 
Was this the time to do a one and a half trillion dollar tax cut? Are you, were you, was, the, was the administration goosing the economy at a time where it was already in danger of overheating? What I think is irresponsible is that in the ninth year of an economic expansion, you should be running such a large budget deficit. I think that, I think, is the real problem, which is the fact that if you will not run a budget surplus now, then when will you ever run a budget surplus? And this may sort of come back to bite the uh, economy here because interest rates are now beginning to rise and everyone's been very comfortable that as long as interest rates are low, we can afford all this kind of spending. But I think, to me, this is uh, really a fault line and it's, I think, across the aisles. Right. Keynes would have said in good times you run surpluses and in bad times you run deficits, not that you run deficits permanently. Exactly. And this is where I think that the countries like Germany, you know, which have a sort of uh, constitutional uh, uh, provision there that you have to balance your budget, I think that model is going to possibly shine more in the years ahead. Richard Sharma, always a pleasure. Great. Thanks, for it. Up next, an ambulance used as a bomb, an attack on a Save the Children headquarters. Just what is going on in Afghanistan? Washington has something to do with it. I'll tell you when we come back. An ambulance packed with explosives detonates on a crowded Kabul street, killing more than 100 people. A military base in Kabul is attacked, leaving almost a dozen dead. An international hotel under siege for 12 hours, more than 20 people gone. And then an office of the NGO Save the Children is brazenly attacked. Another long battle ensues, ending with multiple deaths. These are just some of the attacks in Afghanistan in recent weeks, and they all came after President Trump announced he was withholding security aid from neighboring Pakistan for giving safe haven to terrorists. Is there a connection? Joining me now from Kabul is Mujib Mashal, the New York Times' senior correspondent in Afghanistan, and Hussein Haqqani joins us as well. He was formerly Pakistan's ambassador to the U.S. Mujib, so let me first start by just asking you, is it fair to say that this increase in pressure seems uh, pretty directly related to Trump's policy of getting tough with Pakistan? This is Pakistan's policy, in a way, of getting tough with Trump. I think so. I think so. I I think when the policy was announced, um, everyone was expecting an escalation, that if you squeeze Pakistan, there's definitely going to be a backlash immediately. But you always expect an uptick in urban fighting and urban explosions during the winter season. So that coincided with the the blowback of the of the Trump squeeze of Pakistan. Uh, the escalation is very clearly felt, uh, particularly in Kabul, um, where, as you described, there's been a series of attacks. Um, not only has that affected the civilians, but also has increased the pressure on the government that is already politically very weak. And it's just been deadlier. Um, the attacks, maybe in the frequency of attacks is not unprecedented, as happened in previous years. It's just that the attacks are much deadlier than before. Hussein Haqqani, I think, you know, many Americans and people around the world must be wondering, this is 16 years, 17 years, the most powerful military in the world. Why is the Taliban so strong? Why is it so resilient? The Taliban are not strong. The fact remains that the Taliban offered Afghanistan nothing while they ruled except daily executions. Uh, Basically, they have a safe haven and they have retained their core fighting force. And America has not really fought them 
effectively. Uh, President Bush uh, got distracted with Iraq. Uh, President Obama uh, announced a surge, but also announced the date that the surge would end, which basically meant telling the Taliban, who already believed uh, that the Americans have the watches and we have the time, that there is a limit uh, to which you have to wait, and after that you can have success. Uh, now that President Trump has said what he has said, I think the Taliban want to prove that they will continue to be a nuisance, they can continue to attack, and their backers in Pakistan want to demonstrate that there is no solution to the Afghan quagmire except talking to them and talking to the Taliban through them. I think that President Trump has essentially shown that America can try to fight to win, which hasn't been done so far. Mujib, what about this issue of the, the legitimacy of the Afghan government? Because at the end of the day, if America is at some point to leave Afghanistan, it can only leave if that government is seen as legitimate. What is your sense? Sadly, right now, the government is not in that position. It is a weak, politically weak government. It is struggling with it, the periphery. Um, its space of control has shrunk over the years. Uh, President Ashraf Ghani, uh, he came with a vision. He's a you know, Western educated, he lived in the West for a long time. He has a very clear vision, economically driven vision, but he has struggled to connect with his own people. He's struggled to work with the political elite that have gotten used to you know, 14, 15 years of a certain way of, of being stakeholders in this state while continuing to do their dirty business. So it's not just the legitimacy, but it's also the fragility of the political setup that is in question right now. Uh, Hussein, you outlined the Trump administration pursuing a kind of very aggressive new strategy, more bombing, more uh, troops in, uh, involved, um, and of course this very tough talk and action against Pakistan. It feels like you almost need a kind of Henry Kissinger to pull off this kind of very complex uh, diplomacy. Do you think they're up to the, the Trump administration is up to it, or will the Pakistani military ultimately outwit and outlast them? Well, very simply stated, Pakistan is not going to change any of its policies just under threats and because of statements. It will all depend on whether all the various instruments of American national power are brought uh, to bear and primarily to win the argument, to convince Pakistan's generals that just as uh, they haven't succeeded in 16 years and America hasn't succeeded in 16 years, uh, can there be a solution in which uh, Pakistan's genuine concerns about an Indian military presence in Afghanistan Pakistan can be addressed. Uh, India is not interested in sending troops from what we have gathered so far, but convince them that their imaginary fears should not be the reason why Afghanistan and Pakistan should continue to suffer the war. I don't know if anybody in this administration at the moment is making that argument to the Pakistanis effectively. Mujib Mashal, Hussein Haqqani, fascinating conversation. Thank you both. Next on GPS, we'll move a little further west to another foreign policy trouble spot for the Trump administration, Qatar. President Trump tweeted support for Saudi Arabia's tough actions against its neighbor, Qatar. It's unclear whether he knew that the United States has a key military base in Qatar and a defense agreement with that nation. I'll talk to Qatar's foreign minister about the ongoing crisis when we come back. Donald Trump took his first trip abroad as president last May, and the first stop was Saudi Arabia. He was welcomed to Riyadh by the king, a fighter jet flyover, and a brass band. The trip left a big impression on him because he tweeted about it two weeks later, saying, 
So good to see the Saudi Arabia visit with the king and 50 countries already paying off. They said they would take a hard line on funding. Extremism and all reference was pointing to Qatar. Perhaps this will be the beginning of the end to the horror of terrorism. What was he referring to? Well, days earlier, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, Bahrain, and some other Arab states had cut ties with Qatar, saying the small nation was a supporter of terrorism and had grown too close to Iran. As you'll hear in a moment, Qatar denies all this, but the crisis goes on with no real end in sight. I had the opportunity to sit down with Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdul Rahman Al Thani when he was in Washington. He is Qatar's foreign minister and deputy prime minister. Mr. Minister, pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much for hosting me, Farid. So for much of the world, this situation between Qatar and Saudi Arabia largely, but some of the other Gulf states, is very perplexing. They would argue, um, principally Saudi Arabia, that uh, Qatar is too friendly to Iran. What do you say about that? We are not too friendly to Iran. We, are, we, want, we want a peaceful na- neighborhood. We are, we, have, we are sharing borders with Iran as we are sharing borders with Saudi. We have differences in Iran po- with Iran in their policies, and we are sharing with them LNG field. A very large, like the largest the natural largest, gas field. The largest natural gas field. So, but those, those differences and those conflicts between us and the region, they won't be solved on a battlefield. They will be solved by dialogue. So they then say that Qatar has ties to terrorism. In fact, they were able to convince even President Trump of this. Um, what do you, how do you respond to that? United States knows very well it's, uh, and recognizes the partnership it has with Qatar and the countering terrorism. And in fact, yesterday we were holding the strategic dialogue, which states very clearly that Qatar is an important partner in the countering terrorism, and the United States recognizes its role. There is no uh, any argument behind this uh, uh, ter- behind terrorism uh, accusation. They never supported anything. They failed to support with any evidence that Qatar is supporting terrorism. And in fact, Qatar is a front runner when it comes to the fight against terror. When the crisis began, Donald Trump tweeted out something that supported the Saudi position and said Qatar has been financing terrorism and now the, the, they are being called to account. What was that about? Those tweets, you know, no country has built its policy based based on on tweets. We have this government, very close government exchange between our two uh, countries. And also the president, he is determined to solve this crisis. And he highlighted this in several phone calls with His Highness the Emir. And we appreciate the role he is playing in this. So you feel that the relations between President Trump and the Emir are strong and close and President Trump understands the emir's position we have very strong relationship with the united states and the president expressed his understanding to the situation and expressed his willingness to uh, address the situation at the beginning of the crisis it's it's it was different then the government agencies they know very well what's the nature of the relationship between qatar and the united states and the behavior of of qatar in the region that's nothing to do with terrorism we are always a supporter for all the for the global efforts uh, anti-terrorism. What is the solution here? What is it that Qatar could do that would allow for a kind of exit from this crisis? We see that there is no winner out of this crisis. Everybody loses, and the biggest loser are, our, are the GCC people. 
The GCC used to be a framework which bring everybody together. We are sharing uh, uh, the same uh, ethnicity, the same tribes, families together. We are interconnected as a people. There is no differences between the people themselves. Now, for uh, in order to have a solution, a steps toward a solution, Qatar always willing to engage in dialogue and to understand what behind all this, what behind this blockade. But from their side, there is no willingness. And you cannot solve a problem with the willingness of one party. You have to get the two parties aboard. Do you worry that there is a possibility of a Saudi invasion of Qatar? No, there is no worry of Saudi invasion or any country invasion. Our country is, is well protected. Our partnership with our international allies, like United States, is, is also there. And uh, they are, we, have, we have all the means to protect our countries against any external aggression. So you feel secure? We are feeling secure. Mr. Foreign Minister, pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. Switzerland's financial system is famously opaque. So it may not surprise you to learn that the country topped the Tax Justice Network's 2018 Financial Secrecy Index. But this year's runner-up in the rankings might not be what you'd expect. It brings me to my question. What country or territory ranks second in secrecy and offshore financial activity according to the Tax Justice Network? The United Arab Emirates, the United States, the British Virgin Islands, or Singapore? Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. My book of the week is How Democracies Die by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. This is not another diatribe against Donald Trump, though there is some of that. It's mainly a smart and deeply informed book about the ways in which democracy is being undermined in dozens of countries around the world and in ways that are perfectly legal. The authors remind us that what sustains democracy is not just constitutions and laws, but norms and behavior. If leaders act in thoroughly undemocratic ways, democracy over time will collapse. And now for the last look. Conservation, environment, preservation, climate. These words were all absent from President Trump's first State of the Union address last week. But 6,000 miles south of Washington, one country's president was spotlighting them in a historic way. Outgoing Chilean President Michelle Bachelet signed a decree creating more than 10 million acres of new national parks in her country. This is not simply a tale of a nation taking impressive steps to preserve and protect its treasured terrain. Roughly one-tenth of the land was donated to the Chilean government in what has been called the world's largest donation of privately held land to a country in history. So who are the generous benefactors? Well, Two Americans, Christine Tompkins, a former CEO of Patagonia, and her late husband, a co-founder of the North Face. The couple had reportedly been purchasing land in Chile since the early 1990s. Their foundation, the Tompkins Conservation, donated more than a million acres and combined with additional government land, President Bachelet announced that national parks will increase by nearly 40%. Stories of private individuals buying up public lands often end in development, like the song goes, paving paradise to put up a parking lot. At a time when America's public parks are facing severe cutbacks and public lands are being opened up for private use, here is a shining example of a developing country preserving its heritage. The answer to the GPS challenge question is B. Although offshore finance hotspots like Switzerland or the Cayman Islands are generally less transparent, 
The Tax Justice Network says the United States now provides more offshore financial services, including secrecy and tax-free facilities for non-residents than any other jurisdiction, accounting for over 22% of the global market. The ranking was released as Switzerland is set to start divulging financial information to foreign tax agencies after years of pressure from Washington. If you like the GPS Challenge, don't forget we have launched the GPS Challenge online. Every Sunday, we'll post our website 10 questions that will test your knowledge of the world. See how well you do? Go to CNN.com slash Fareed Quiz and try your hand. Thank you to all of you for being part of this program. I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.